So our second speaker for today is Junaid Mubeen. So Junaid was here as an undergraduate. He came here in 2003, I believe. Yep. And so he was, uh, well, at admissions we were struck already by Junaid's uh, tenacity when problem solving. And uh, that tenacity has driven him a long way. So firstly to doing extremely well as an undergraduate, so getting uh, one of the top first in the university, through a PhD, and then through a process of uh, browbeating the uh, Kennedy uh, Scholarship Committee into giving him a scholarship to Harvard, and where he did, went to do an MSc in mathematical education. He's now returned to this country to be, I think, a, what he would describe himself as an educational entrepreneur. <laughs> That's a very flattering term, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so he, 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 well, anyway, so Junaid is here to share his thoughts on uh, mathematical education with us. Uh, yeah. So thank you, Jim. Well, thanks, Ben. It's, it really is a great privilege to be back here in the place where my mathematical journey really took flight. And I'm no doubt that everyone in this room has at some point been touched by the brilliance of the St. Anne's teaching team. Their commitment to nurturing young mathematicians is second to none. And I'll never take for granted their uncanny ability to make the most complex ideas seem at least vaguely logical. Uh, on account of the talk that we've just heard and, and many of the conversations that I've already had today, it's clear that the, the tradition of excellence still shines bright here at St. Anne's. But we can't forget that we're the lucky ones, and for our successors, there's a generation of mathematical potential that isn't being realised. And for the past three years, I've been driven by the question of how we scale up the kind of world-class teaching that we've all been blessed with across the world. In other words, how do we take Hillary, who's kind of the protagonist of this talk, and it's a shame she's not here, but how do we take Hillary to every classroom and campus across the globe? <laughs> I've got about 15 minutes to figure it out. My work is in online education, and I'm going to describe two emerging trends in the space of online learning that I think are about to disrupt uh, the education sector forever and maths in particular, one at the school level and the other at university. So first, let's be clear, our education system really is in serious need of disruption. And my search for answers actually began in policy, but I soon realised that policy isn't really, really the domain for problem solving or indeed innovation. And the sobering reality is that our education system is built on an industrial model of learning that hasn't evolved beyond the needs of the 19th century. And the other reality is that the lifespan of politicians is too short to generate any meaningful impact. Take the recent proposed changes to GCSEs, widely hailed as the most radical education reforms of a generation. And that's probably true. But take a closer look and you'll see that they're no more than a throwback to O-levels at best and a blatant rip-off of Far East education systems at worst. And our obsession with high-stakes testing is stunting the development of the next generation of mathematical thinkers. Now, there are too many flaws, too many, in our existing education model for me to go through here, but I do want to mention three. The first is that we take a one-size-fits-all approach to learning. Consider this. Consider that if you take two students in a given classroom, you can be absolutely sure that they'll be learning the same content at the same time and at the same pace. And that's because we assume in education that learning and understanding mathematical concepts is a smooth, linear process for every child. And yet our experience tells us that this is hopelessly misguided. I was very fortunate to be a member of the St. Anne's class of 2003. 
We were wonderfully diverse in every way imaginable, but especially our learning, and I'm sure Ben would attest to this. There were those of us who flocked to analysis and linear algebra and all the pure courses, others who didn't want anything to do with that and went instead to differential equations and all the applied stuff, and we had everything in between. And it was that diversity that really uh, made our year group and made this college what it is. And yet our mainstream education system would have us believe that we all have identical learning profiles, that we should all be taught in the exact same way, and that we should pick the exact same courses. And the real problem here is that maths is a hierarchical subject. We all know this. We know that topics build on top of each other, so that one small misunderstanding today will blow up over time. And that leaves many students thinking paralysed when they aren't given the time and space they need to plug the gaps in their understanding. The second major flaw is that the maths curriculum as it stands today is very heavily centred around knowledge rather than problem solving. For whatever reason, we have an obsession in this country with the amount of content that students learn. We seem more interested in what they know rather than in how they think. And going back to the recent proposed changes, well, they mandate even more curriculum content as if students aren't being suffocated enough already. And our obsession with facts has given rise to a culture in which students are punished for not having certain often obscure facts and formulae at their fingertips. And we all know that there's no better way to kill their creativity and perhaps more importantly, their love for the subject. And the third problem, and it might be the most important, is the role of the teacher. And I understand that I may be stoking controversy here. But right now, teachers are positioned as the sole owners of mathematical content. And their job is to deposit mathematical knowledge into the minds of students. It sounds good in principle, what it means in practice is that learning becomes a very passive experience for students, and it gives them no agency whatsoever to regulate their own thinking. And we have to admit it that as a profession, teaching has become so prescriptive and mechanical that it's turned away a generation of would-be educators and mentors and role models. And we have bright sparks, of course. We have them here at St. Anne's. But it's not quite at the scale that we need to bring about systemic change. Now, it's widely recognise that any education system can only be as good as its teachers. And I think that's true, and that's exactly what worries me. So most policy talks would end right about here. Policy makers, and indeed politicians, have a knack for levelling criticism, but they're, they're not so forthcoming with solutions. And I'm going to stoke more controversy now, because it's worth mentioning that neither were researchers of maths education... Academic papers on maths education can be, and very often are, intellectually stimulating. But too often, they're inaccessible to the public in terms of the language in which they're written and the kinds of publications in which they surface, and they lack any practical relevance. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think there's a time and a place to pursue knowledge for its own sake. I mean, I was a pure mathematician. But with education, surely we have a moral imperative to make those ideas count. And so for a while there, I, I felt rather lost. I was wondering where the promised education revolution would come from. And it was during my two years in the US that I found what I think I was looking for. I caught a glimpse of what rural education innovation might look like. And it came in the form of two major education movements. So let's start at the school level. How many of you have heard of the Khan Academy? So quite a few. Around five years ago, a Harvard-MIT graduate called Sal Khan 
became a YouTube sensation for his bite-sized math tutorials that he'd created for his cousin. And many millions of views later, and many millions of dollars of funding later, from the likes of the Gates Foundation and, and Google, the Khan Academy was established. So if you go to khanacademy.org, you'll get free access to an entire curriculum of maths videos, starting from the basic building blocks of arithmetic all the way through to undergraduate-level calculus. And along with those videos, there's a complete suite of exercises that offer automated gradeback so students get feedback in real time. Um, now, on one level, it's just a digitalized textbook of sorts, and it's now available in over 10 languages across a variety of subjects. But the true innovation for maths education lies in its real-time data feeds that track students every click, every view, every download, every video watched, every exercise attempted, every question answered correctly and incorrectly. And for the first time, students are able to monitor their progress using big data, maybe not big in the sense of Google, but still fairly big, and use data-driven feedback to adjust their learning habits. And over the past few years, the model has also pen penetrated the US school system. And at that level, Khan Academy enables the so-called flipped classroom model. So students can now access content online, which acts as their homework, and class time is devoted to deeper problem solving. So this is a complete reversal of the existing model in which teachers are the sole providers of content and very little time, if any at all, is given in the classroom to problem solving, which we all know here is the heart and soul of mathematics. And what's more, teachers can monitor their students' progress online. So they enter the classroom with clear data points on each of their students. They know where each student's unique strengths and weaknesses lie. And teachers can then give different students different tasks at different levels depending on where they're each at. So if Janaid struggles at geometry, which he quite often does, then the teacher can look at the data and recognize that Graham, the star geometer, is in a position to help Janaid out. And once teachers have individual student-level data, the dynamic of the classroom is completely redefined and a world of new possibilities open up. And now we can overturn the three flaws that I mentioned earlier. Because learning is no longer one-size-fits-all. Students are free to go through topics at their own pace. And the technology is adaptive, so it recommends topics based on what students have already learnt. And so there's no risk of missing key ideas before they move on. And of course, the focus in the classroom really is now on problem-solving, which encourages an ethos of experimentation and even failure. Now, we all study maths because we love to solve problems, and for the first time, it can also be a reason to teach, because the, the role of the teacher now transitions away from the content provider and towards more of a coach, where their responsibility is to create a dynamic from one lesson to the next that fosters collaboration between students and that personalizes each child's learning experience. But perhaps the biggest innovation that Khan Academy and, and other models like it will bring about is that it will do away with our narrow notions of mathematical intelligence. Students will no longer be punished for a low test score. Instead, that score is fed back into the system as a currency of feedback. And Khan Academy is a true champion of mastery-based learning. The idea that every student deserves a shared commitment to ensuring that they clear acceptable levels of mathematical understanding. Now, there are a few other benefits to this model, too, that I, I want to quickly summarize. On one level, Khan Academy will reveal new insights into, into the way that students learn. 
The site captures right now 5 million unique data points every day. And when you combine that with on-the-ground perspectives from the classroom, mass education research will take on a new flavor, one that favors practical experience over abstract frameworks. And Khan Academy can help us to think beyond high-stakes tests when we measure mathematical potential. My nephew Ibrahim is 10 years old, and under my guidance, he's been on Khan Academy for around a year. And by the time he's 18, he'll of course be ready to follow in his uncle's footsteps and submit his maths application to St. Anne's. <laughs> but the hope would be that by now, the admissions tutors will have a complete profile of his learning based on his every interaction over the past eight years. So his profile will include measures of persistence. How often did he give up on a topic when he got stuck? It'll include measures of role understanding. How often was he able to tackle high-level problems? What's his general pattern of learning? Is he drawn to concepts or procedures? Does he work well to deadlines? Is he more productive in the evenings or the weekends? How proactive is he in the summer? And once we have this atomic level information at our fingertips, we can replace the snapshot measures of assessment with continuous data loops. And assessment and admissions may well get the overhaul that they so desperately need. Now, I mentioned Khan Academy a lot. It's, it, it is the undisputed leader of online learning at the school level. But more than that, it's the forerunner to another major movement in, in online learning, and this time at the university level. So how many of you have heard of MOOCs? Fewer than Khan Academy. That's interesting. MOOC, Massive Open Online Courses. The MOOC movement began in earnest around two years ago when Andrew Nung, uh, an engineering professor at St. Anne's, sorry, Stanford, something, uh, something in the water. Easy mistake to make. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be here before long. Um, so an engineering professor at Stanford decided to post his course materials online. Nothing novel in itself. But to his surprise, 150,000 students signed up the world over. And so they had free access to his course materials. And so he set about to spread his model, and as a result, very soon he co-founded a platform called Coursera. And the way the model works is this. Coursera partners with prestigious universities and lecturers who deliver free world-class content. So students the world over can sign up for free, and they can access lectures, which usually take the form of videos. They can also access problem sheets and exercises. And forums are also set up to facilitate virtual and sometimes in-person collaboration. Now, there are differences between the Khan Academy model and the MOOC model. So the MOOC model tends to be more structured. Courses are offered at particular times of the year. Um, now, Harvard and MIT, a bit closer to, to my previous home, uh, decided this was a good idea. So they also got their skin in the game by setting up a rival platform called edX. And closer to home, FutureLearn um, was set up a few months ago by a consortium that includes many UK-based universities. And there are even platforms that sit outside of academic institutions. So Udacity and Udemy are two prominent examples of online learning platforms that cater for a whole range of learning needs. So head over there if you want to improve your online marketing skills, if you want to learn a bit of code, or even just learn a fancy new recipe. Now, the MOOC movement is still in its infancy, and it comes with its fair share of teething problems. So for example, completion rates are at around 10%. So 150,000 sounds very impressive, but that's just the number of students who signed up. In terms of those who actually 
completed the course, we're talking more like 10 to 15,000. And a large part of the problem is that no one's quite figured out how you grade, let's say, 150,000 essays at scale. And this is what a lot of my work is, is currently revolves around. And different models are being put forward around peer review, automated essay review. But it's fair to say that that nut hasn't yet been cracked. But it's also fair to say that the MOOC movement is gaining steam. And there appear to be two aspects of the MOOC model that I think could disrupt the higher education marketplace. And the first is accreditation. So many platforms are now offering students a certified credential for completing some of their courses. So the promise of a free, or at least heavily subsidized, world-class experience, world-class learning experience for anyone may finally be realized at the university level. In principle, students the world over could acquire world-class qualifications needing only an internet connection, and sometimes not even that. And so we have the potential now for an open marketplace of qualifications. And universities can widen their reach by offering courses and qualifications outside the bricks and mortar of their campus. And we could well see a generation of leading mathematicians plucked out of obscurity. And we can't forget where we are, and I know what you're probably thinking. Oxford itself is likely to be untouched by the MOOC movement. It's one of the few institutions that really can stand on its prestige and tradition in the face of change. But there is a second dimension to the MOOC model that I think so far has gone unnoticed but will inevitably be a game changer. Let's suppose Ibrahim doesn't make it to St. Anne's. It's, it's a horrible thought. But let's suppose he doesn't make it to Oxford and he ends up at a second-tier university. Now, we all know that higher education is under threat. Teaching budgets were slashed by £900 million this year alone, and that's a, a trend that's likely to continue for some time. So what do these universities do when their budget constraints don't allow, allow them to hire a full suite of lecturers. How does Ibrahim get access to world-class content? Well, what both Khan Academy and particularly the MOOC model suggest is that perhaps, perhaps, the traditional model of lectures is not fit for purpose. Why not instead take the best analysis lecturer in the world, i.e. Hillary, <laughs> and post her lectures and exercises online? Now, don't be alarmed. Oxford students could still attend her lectures in person but there wouldn't be a need for someone like Ibrahim to, and especially not when his university is unable to afford a lecturer anyway. And so those universities could instead focus their limited resources on providing tutorials and even utilising aspects of virtual collaboration. So while Oxford itself may not feel the effects of change, it does have enormous potential to project its vision for learning to the rest of the world. And that's how we get Hillary to every campus across the globe. But going back to school for a moment, imagine having an open marketplace of content providers that teachers and students could simply pick off the shelf. So if you have a love for explaining mathematical concepts, and I imagine many of you do, then the adventure that within a generation, our education system will come to depend on you very heavily. Now there is a caveat, of course, and that is that policymakers are still the gatekeepers. And that reality is unlikely to change for some time. But slowly and surely, alternative models of learning are gaining momentum. And all we need is the courage to change our thinking towards education. We have in this room around 50 mathematicians who made it through the system. You feel the power of your education every day, in your work and in your lives. 
And now I invite you to ask yourself the role that you can each play in the upcoming maths learning revolution. Thank you.